This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. Okay, you can make Albuquerque jokes in Albuquerque. Oh, you're in Albuquerque. Yeah. Are you having an A1 day? Uh, I've been waiting for like since episode four to make that joke. <laughs> but see, I'm not at a car wash. You gotta wait till you gotta wait till I, I, I go to a car wash, which I will probably do while I'm here. Because that's what you do in Albuquerque. Well, of course. That and ride hot air balloons. That's all I know about Albuquerque. Well, and you know, <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. It's the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta. It's the uh, largest hot air balloon event in the world. Do you fly a hot air balloon? Uh, I will. I will be going up in one. I will not be flying one because my pilot's license is expired. But yes, I do fly. Interesting. I was talking about the other day how, like, when I was a kid, I used to see hot air balloons flying around all the time. I lived in the suburbs. That's probably why. <laughs> not too many. more common in the suburbs. Yeah. yeah. But like, they would land on the golf course down the street or whatever, which I can't imagine was ever cleared. Like, <laughs> and, like a pickup truck would just kind of like ride down the road. Yeah. <laughs> throw the balloon in the back of the pickup truck. I mean, the setup's sort of like, like, yeah, that is technically illegal, but most people won't complain. And then if they do complain to the FAA, like, there's just sort of this understanding, we'll stop. And in return for us, like, always being really prompt about responding to complaints and making sure the FAA doesn't get a lot of complaints, the FAA more or less leaves us alone. Good luck with your balloon flying. <laughs> I hope you don't no, crash into other balloons. Or... No, that's the thing. Well, A, so you couldn't crash into another balloon. Well, so there's only one way you could crash into another balloon, which is coming up from underneath them. And even then, that's really hard to do. Why can't but you, like, crew, why can't your balloons, uh, like, crash into each other? You're on the same from the side? Because you both have the exact same amount of thrust coming in the same direction. Because uh, right. you're both being propelled by the wind. Right. And so in aviation, the least maneuverable vehicle always has the right of way. And then with balloons, there's one additional caveat, where the person below you always has the right of way over you. Because you can see them, they can't see you. But what do you do about that? <laughs> Your only option is to go higher. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, generally speaking, unless you're at an event like Balloon Fiesta, you never have to worry about that because just you're not going to get close enough to another balloon for it to be a problem. And they do lots of stuff with the timings of launches here to make sure that basically everybody's more or less at the same altitude if they're within. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember the exact number. I think it's like a 400 foot radius. Basically, if, if you're in a hot air balloon, you're, you're really not much of a danger to anybody other than yourself or anybody dumb enough to get in with you. Because, like, if you hit a building, which you have to be really dumb to <laughs> the even be able gonna to do win. that because that's really hard to do. No, you'll, like, gently bounce <laughs> off. Okay. Your biggest threat is power lines, which, I mean, to be fair, if you don't know what you're doing, then, yeah, power lines are a major risk. But if you hit the power lines, right, you'll hurt yourself, and that's about it. Could a drone do some damage to your balloon? I suppose you could... No, a drone would probably win. Yeah, so the drone Maybe would not. take your balloon down. Depends Maybe. on how big the drone is. <laughs> gonna watch the out. The drone probably couldn't do much to the balloon. Those Amazon delivery drones off. are going to be pretty big. Better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck flying. Buildings have right of way. Building, okay. Yeah, the buildings have the right of way. <laughs> buildings have right of way, right. They're, they are technically less maneuverable. <laughs>
Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Uh, I am between projects, so I'm not currently on a client project, but I've been working on um, Opcase, which mm -hmm. is our We'll Teach You Rails product. And um, I had an interesting experience the other day, and uh, Ben reported that he wasn't able to load Opcase on his phone at all. Like, it just came up as a blank page. Okay. And so I looked at it, and I also was unable to load Upcase on my phone. We both have iOS devices on iOS 9, and we quickly realized that it was because content blockers, right? We both had content blockers installed, and we were like, well, what's happening is, like, Upcase.com been flagged as, like, a tracker or something? Like, why is no oh, content on this page working at all whatsoever? And then I noticed that, like, the 404 page rendered just fine. And I was like, okay, well, this clearly that's not the problem. And also, like, there was a noticeable delay when you wrote, when you load the page, and then it became, and then it was blank. So it was like, all right, it's, it's loading content; it's not blocking the entire domain. So was the entire page flagged as an ad? No, it was just like it seems to be like it, it took a while to track down because I was like, how am I going to track? You have no visibility. It's not like when you run Ghostry, you know, on your desktop browser where it shows you like I'm blocking eight things, and you can be like, well, what happens if I unblock this, right? So on iOS. You don't use iOS, but you get no visibility, basically. And maybe some of these blockers give you some sort of visibility, but when you're using Safari, you get no visibility into what was blocked. You have an option where you can say, like, open this site unrestricted, which means, like, show me what it would look like if there were no content blockers. And that worked. So then it's like, you have no, like, there's no, there's no binary search you can do <laughs> to right. figure out what's causing the blank page. So I thought about it for a while. What I was able to finally figure out to do was use ngrok, like set up set up localhost to serve upcase, use ngrok to make it so I could get to it from my phone, and then manually start commenting things out like in the layout. So I could have like, because I can't do that to production, right? I can't just like, <laughs> let me comment out this JavaScript and push this up. No, yeah, it's it's just, I mean, it reminds me, right, of when I was talking about debugging OpenGL, and it's just like, there's literally nothing you can do other than throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. Right. It's the worst place. So what it ended up, what it actually ended up being was after the binary search was complete, it ended up being this thing called Visual Website Optimizer, which not surprising that that would get blocked, right? Because it's clearly doing some sort of tracking. It's for it's built for A/B testing, so they must, you know, we're doing some visual tweaking of the page and doing some A/B testing based on that. But what's really weird is like I have Ghostery, and that is a different API than Safari content blockers are, but it does the same thing. Like Safari, like Ghostery is blocking. It tells it reports that it's blocking Visual Website Optimizer on Upcase, but the page still loads fine. So there's something about the Content Blocker API, or maybe exactly how those blockers are going about blocking Visual Website Optimizer, that's causing the blank page. It's all, it's like Visual Website Optimizer is like loading enough to know like okay, here's my canvas, but then not loading enough to know <laughs> like here's what I need to do to complete this A/B test or something like that. So the fix ended up being like contacting Visual Website Optimizer and they were like, yeah, we're working on this. Uh, here's a updated snippet to use. And so we put that snippet in and it worked. I tried for a little while to like go through the snippet and be like, well, what did they change to fix this, right? Are they getting around the content blocker or are they fixing the issue where if it's blocked, the website still loads fine? Like I'm hoping that if it's blocked, the website still loads fine is the fix, not like we're tweaking it to get around these content blockers, right? But I don't know because like, it's one of those JavaScript snippets. It's all like condensed to one line and like with obfuscated variables because it's trying to be as small as possible, that kind of thing. So it's unclear to me which, right. which method it's taking. But it, it just like it's only been a couple weeks since iOS 9 has been out. And 
when it came out and I installed the con- I installed the content blocker, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> the web is so much faster when you block all this garbage. And that's not to say Visual Website Optimizer is garbage. It just happens to get thrown out with the with the rest of the garbage, right? Right. Um, it has value. You know, doing A/B testing is you know value valuable, but it's also like part of the contract that I don't have to do that, right? If I don't want to download that and execute that, then I don't have to. Right. So when that first came out, I was like, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to start like Are we going to see people start moving back to like server side analytics? Because like I also block Google Analytics now. Because why not? Like I don't like. Whatever I block like for the longest time I didn't block any ads on the internet because I was like, well, this is how the internet makes. But they just got so terrible that it was like, yeah. And now that I have like, I've been like, fine, I'm gonna go block them. And frankly, all the ad blockers were pretty terrible for a long time as well. But now that I'm blocking it, like stuff is so much faster that I I just feel like this is just gonna like I feel like it's gonna catch on, and I feel like through word of mouth with people with iOS devices, and I'm sure something similar will happen on android as well although i don't know i mean google's incentives are different right right but like i feel just through word of mouth it'll be like oh did you install one blocker or whatever the hot new one is right and then people are like what's that and they're like it, it speeds up your browsing that's all you need to say <laughs> and people are like okay yeah let me do that and then you're like holy crap that does and like i just feel like more and more people are going to do this and it's going to be it's going to be a bigger deal than it was on the des- on the desktop on the desktop it was almost negligible right like some people are going to block ads in JavaScript. You know, oh, well. But yeah. I feel like on, on mobile phones, because traffic, first of all, mobile traffic is way up. And then also, like, I don't know, people like installing apps, right? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> like, you can install yeah. this app and it's going to make the web, like, noticeably way, way faster. Like, a content blocker on my desktop makes it seem faster. But not, like, oh, like, the first time I loaded a page, I loaded Boston.com, which is one of the worst websites ever. <laughs> And it does terrible advertising. Like somebody did a report and said, like, if you visited a Boston.com every day for a month or something like that, you would use like seven gigabytes of data. I don't remember exactly what it was, but we'll link to it. It's something absurd where you're like, what? Are, that's just unconscionable. Yeah. But um, just loading that page, I was like, oh, I'm never going back. Like it's so much faster now. <laughs> um, anyway, my point was, I think we're going to end up back in the spot where we're going to either be dodging content blockers by doing weird stuff, or we're just going to be like, well. I'm going to proxy everything on through my server or I'm going to do like server side analytics constantly. Do you think that we're going to see an end game way like the what is the the ad blocker plus acceptable ads program where when somebody is whitelisted as just the ads that you're serving are not ridiculously in your face and not using up an absurd amount of bandwidth so we'll let it through. Do you think that's the end game for this? I don't know because that game also comes with money, right? So that game is like it's not just, to my knowledge anyway, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, if you know that I'm wrong here. My knowledge is, like, yes, there is some semblance of, like, Adblock Plus or whatever being able to say, and I say Adblock Plus, I know the Adblock name is kind of, like... Well, Adblock got bought by Adblock Plus. Okay. <laughs> okay. That was a big hubbub. So one of them has this approved ads thing, right? Right. And you can buy, you basically can buy your way into it. Yeah, no, no, no. So that particular program is super sketchy. I more mean the idea behind it, where it's just if content is non-intrusive and non-bandwidth intensive, that it gets it gets let through. Yeah, I think the trick in that is everybody has a different definition. Like some people really don't want to be tracked, and I'm one of those people who don't like. I don't. I'm not super comfortable with being tracked all over this all over the place by one company. Oh, no, we solved that with Google. Do Not Track, don't you remember? <laughs> right, yeah, I have that turned on too, but it doesn't do anything. <laughs> Problem good. solved. Um, I'm sure everybody pays attention to it. <laughs> 
but like everything I do is like I'm logged in and I have email through Google and then every site I visit is using Google Analytics. They know I'm logged in. And then like on the same day, I, I think it was on the same day that iOS 9 released with content blockers, either the same day or a couple days later, Google announced that they're going to allow people to advertise to customers by their email address. So you could like advertise to Sean at Sean the Programmer.com, right? Because Google knows you're logged in. So like not only are we just gonna like say you can advertise to twenty-four to thirty-five year olds who are in this industry, we're gonna say like if you have their email address, give it to us and we can advertise to you. So I don't know, that whole that whole thing is starting to make me feel uncomfortable. But like from the technical perspective, I just feel like we are gonna start to see like Already you can do, like if you're using Mixpanel or Segment or whatever, like Segment is what we try to use, which kind of stands in front of all of these different analytics stuff, right? Right. And you can use, you can track Segment events in JavaScript or you can track them on the server. And I've always preferred to do them on the server, even though it's a little mean, it's not mean, it's a little messy because you have to stub them out in your specs. You right. can't just like block the JavaScript. Right. So that's a little messier, but I've always preferred to do it that way. And I think that approach is going to start, like people are going to start to have to do that. And I'm wondering even if people are going to start running like local analytics packages, like we used to back in the day, where like everything would be logged to the database. And then like you start to worry about like, I'm going to have to do that in the background because I don't want any part of that eating up any part of the request response cycle, which is why doing it in JavaScript asynchronously is actually really nice because you're not eating up any of the server bandwidth. You're just, you know, you're just using your user's battery life. Right, the user's battery life and the which wasn't a concern when people started doing this. Really, it was like right. we're just going to let the user report this, and maybe they'll have JavaScript turned off, but probably not. And anyway, so that just made me. That's that's where I I, I went down. Like the upcase thing was like the realization of what I had feared, what I not necessarily feared, but thought might be coming. And I think that like we're going to start to see clients come to us and be like, we're not getting the analytics numbers that we used to get. And like either everybody's just going to have to adjust what they're expecting to get and be like, well, everything's going to be five percent lower. <laughs> or people are yeah. going to want real true analytics. It's like I want no part of the war of like trying to get around content blockers. So I'm hoping that that's not what ends up happening, but it probably there's a lot of people with a lot of money at stake that'll probably just start trying to get around the content blockers and then we're in an arms race rather than just saying let's just do this stuff server side as much as possible. Well, I think part of it though is that you can't necessarily get like as rich of a of an analytics flow with only server side data, which is what a lot of people do want. But, you know, it makes especially the sort of thing like even on Upcase, right, that you guys do in terms of um, just analyzing churn rates and usage patterns. It's a lot harder to actually, uh, especially if you have a business model that doesn't revolve around the user being signed in all of the time. Mm -hmm. But you also lose the ability to uh, learn things like how long did they stay on a page? Right. Yeah. And that that one in particular. Or like... um, you know, back on Marshall Codex, we didn't have a loading bar uh, at launch. And post-launch, I was in, on this kick of like, let's not make any changes without some sort of analytics to back it up. And I had a theory that like the loading bar was going to help our conversion rates because our load times were still pretty long back then. And like there's an upper limit of how long you can go without any amount of feedback before you just assume it's broken. Mm-hmm. And so I figured if we had a loading bar, we could push uh, uh you know but that buys a little bit of time where we didn't necessarily have to fix the load time problem and so i set up analytics to track the number of people who went to view a lesson and then was on the loading screen for uh 30 or more seconds but did not stay long enough to actually start watching the lesson right and like that was a really u- useful analytics funnel for us and of course now 
if we start doing everything server side, that's just the sort of thing you can never you can never attract actual interaction. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the solution is then. Like <laughs> this I mean, the the best solution is advertisers come to their senses and stop doing terrible things. Um, but they started doing those terrible things for a reason. So I don't I don't see how this ends well for anybody involved. <laughs> I mean, really, right? It, the solution is everybody just not abuse this power and only do and only use it to legitimately improve user experience in your products. But that's never going to happen. And then, of course, people also have differing opinions of how much is appropriate. Right. So it's going to be hard. It's hard. It's going to be hard to get like download something that has like your opinions in it, right? And be like, right. this, these are my opinions. I want to allow Google Analytics, but disallow, you know, I don't know, Facebook tracking or whatever the case may be, right? I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting. I think there's going to be a bunch of technical issues that pop up. Like people who listen to the show will probably be asked to try and circumvent these things and or to like move these things to server side, um, that type of thing. And it'll be interesting to see how it goes. And maybe it, maybe it won't. Maybe actually I'm overstating what the impact will be. Like maybe these content blockers will just be another nerdy thing like desktop content blockers are. I mean, one interesting thing in terms of ad blockers, right, is not necessarily the ad providers, but the advertisers really, really, or even agencies really, really like ad blockers. Because if you have an ad blocker installed, you are never going to be a conversion. And so, hmm. and so it actually helps to increase conversion rates and basically get more value out of the ads that you're displaying for less money. And then the ad networks, of course, hate it because they're getting less money because they're getting fewer uh, impressions. Right. I want to know who the people who do click on ads are. <laughs> I'm just so tuned out to them. I guess I've probably done it before, like particularly in search results where you're not quite sure. Like, oh, that was a sponsored ad. You're like, oh, no, that's not a sponsored listing. That's not what I wanted. But like after a while, you kind of just become aware of how Google lays these out. And you're like, oh, OK, now they have some sponsored stuff at the top where they never used to like way back in the day. And you just become used to that, and you like you know that like on the right rail, there's going to be one of those skyscraper ads that's you know one of those skinny yeah. tall things, and you're just going to ignore it. I feel like that's sort of the the objective even definition of like that's a very unobtrusive ad. The skyscraper thing, the like what Google does in their search results, both the skyscraper and even when they have the sponsored one at the top. Right. Like they, they have a different background color to clearly delineate it. Like it's very, unless you're just completely an autopilot, it's very difficult to accidentally mistake um, a sponsored ad for a search result. It's text only, short amounts, not in your face. You know, like I feel like that's sort of the epitome of a, of a non-obtrusive ad. Yeah. The, the, the genius of like the Google search result ad is that if there are like, if there are no sponsored results for your search term, then your real search results start higher up on the page, right? So you can't always draw your eye to the same exact place and be confident that you're clicking like the top search result, right? So yeah. that's that's how it gets me sometimes. Is like <laughs> I'll be like, oh, like or or I'll find the opposite. Like I'll think I'm clicking on the top actual search result and I'm actually clicking on the third search result because the top two were not sponsored; they were just actual results, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, but yeah, I mean, ultimately though, right? The, I mean, people have been bashing that. I don't remember the the magazine that did the poll, but the online uh, news site that did like the really, really ridiculously leading poll, and people still answered like, "No, I'm going to use ad blockers." Uh, where the question was like, "Do you hate free content?" <laughs> but like, right? Ultimately, they do have a point, which is that there are companies whose business model revolves around free content and ads. 
Right. And like we have to give them some sort of an out. Yeah, I just don't know how it's going to happen. I just don't I I think it's going to be interesting. I don't have like a I don't have anything any stake in this other than like I like the fast internet that I'm getting now that I'm blocking all of these things on a mobile device. Yeah. Um so if you can give me that experience and have it still be fast, then great, but I don't know how I'm going to know to go back to check. <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying, right? Like Yeah maybe maybe they've lost me and i'm just not gonna be like i was never gonna buy anything anyway like you said but i don't know well that's weird right because internet banner ads have always been just consistently the lowest value form of advertising imaginable like not even uh by like a slim margin but like the uh cost per conversion was such a ridiculously low ratio the vast majority of the time uh that was barely even necessarily worth your time uh as an advertiser and i i guess it's just like so right we do the podcast. We have sponsors for the podcast. Mm-hmm. I guess ThoughtBot also has some other financial incentives for the podcast as well. But I think ultimately the idea is generally the cost is mostly offset by the sponsors. Mm-hmm. Kind of. <laughs> um, right? But like, so what's the equivalent? Uh, and I think that the ad reads on the podcast are pretty non-intrusive. So what's the equivalent of that for the web? Um, I would say sponsor, like a sponsored post on a blog or something like that where it's a person talking about a service that they maybe have used before and it's just one post and you can skip over it. It looks exactly like the rest of the site. It's native, like native content, I think is what they call it. Native advertising or something. Maybe I'm not, I might be making these terms up, but, uh, I think that that's equivalent. Like people can skip over when we talk about, you know, whoever the sponsor is, uh, the same thing, same way you can skip over the blog thing. It's not, it's costing you a little bit of bandwidth because you have to download us saying whoever the sponsor is, or you have to download the blog entry. Um, but it's not like what really got me was the stuff that would be like for years I didn't run an ad blocker because I was like this is this is the part of the this is part of the agreement right but what really got me is the stuff that like it's now progressed from here's an advertisement here's a banner advertisement to like here's some code I want you to run right. on your machine and yeah when I got into flash and JavaScript ads like, I'm really careful to run like I only download applications I want to run right so like if you're starting to run so much code on my machine that like if you're not requesting too much of my computer then I'm willing to say like yep that's cool uh anyway I don't know I people probably don't tune in to hear us talk about ad blockers but I just I thought from a perspective of somebody who actually had to debug this problem yeah no <laughs> it's, it's an interesting point of view and I think you're right people like people are gonna have to start dealing with this more and more right um so let's take a break and talk about our sponsor. <laughs> Do we actually have one this week? Um, well, Upcase has uh, been, been kind enough to uh, offer a 50% discount to people who are want to check out the service. So uh, you can check out the link in the show notes. There's a coupon code there. You don't actually enter the coupon code in, so you just click the link to Upcase and you'll get the discount. So uh, check that out in the show notes. What have you been working on? Rails and Rust. Rusty Rails. Rusty Rails, yeah. What, um, what are you doing in Rails land? Uh, I'm sort of in the performance portion of the development cycle right now. There's some other stuff that I really wanted to do for Rails 5, but I just don't feel like I have enough time to to really get any more features out. Yeah, so I've been focusing on performance and uh, one of the- I have a question. Okay. Before I forget, you can go back. Maybe this is what you're going to talk about. Maybe it's not. But I've been following along with the Rails core mailing list now. Like I decided to join it a while ago. Mm-hmm. And there's a, been a post about database connections. Have you been following that thread? Do you understand what's happening there? Because <laughs> I'm a little bit lost on it. Um, there's a couple. Hold on. Let me pull that up really It's fast. basically about somebody saying that, like, right now, Rails reserves... I'm going to... I might get this wrong, but Rails reserves a, a database connection per thread and does not release it back to the pool. Does that sound reasonable? Um, 
sort of. Yeah, let's go with your thing, and then we'll come back to this, or we'll do another. We'll both read up on it and do another thing on it. But yeah, let's, let, yeah, let's talk about that one next week because I, I, I'm I'm vaguely familiar with the thread that that you're talking about. Jeremy is probably the one who's been responding the most. Um, but I'd probably just need to read it more thoroughly to to, to make sure. Okay, um, performance land. Yeah, so performance. Um, so one of the ones that I had been meaning to tackle for a while was that saving a model got like 15% slower in 4.2. Maybe it's 20%. I don't remember which. Of course, that was one of those ones that came up, and I'm like, I'm going to fix that at some point. But it wasn't one of those, oh, my God, I have to fix this right the hell now because just writes are slow. Um, if you were a write-heavy app, you'd probably be using NoSQL and not an RBDMS. Uh, right. And you're most apps bottlenecks are reads not writes right we talked about this i think a little bit on past episodes we were like it's a, it, a trade-off was made that most people we think most people are writing are reading and not writing and that that this is a good trade-off to make yeah so i went ahead and started looking into though what was going on and the the reason rights were slow was uh well there are two reasons so number one i introduced that class called attribute set that lazily builds attribute objects as you read them um, now, during assignment, those attribute objects are always going to get created. Uh, that one turned out to really not be as big of a cost as you would think, but that was part of it. Then the second part was the the way that we track mutation. So in four one, we don't track mutation at all. And as a side effect of that, um, like if you go, if you just look at the history of sort of, if you imagine the design process or the thoughts that went into like why things are the way they are. So in the beginning, there was Rails, and there was no mutation. And if you wanted to mutate a string, you would call will change bang um, because, like, you're just not going to mutate a string on it. That's like a property of an active record model. And then the serialize macros added because somebody wanted to be able to use an array or a hash with MySQL, right? And it's very idiomatic to mutate arrays and hashes. So as a result, it was decided that an attribute that is serialized is always changed. There were uh, a couple of reasons that this was unacceptable then when we get into 4.2. Well, okay, and then you fast forward to Rails 4, right? And now nobody really uses MySQL on new apps anymore. Everybody uses Postgres. And uh, as of Rails 4, we now support, we supported the JSON, HStore, and array data types, all of which are arrays or hashes, all of which would be idiomatic to mutate, none of which had the same special treatment that Serialize had. And that made them very difficult to use. Right. So that means so they don't have the same treatment, which means that like the treatment of serialize is we're just going to pretend this thing always changed. Right. And all this other stuff did what? If you, you had... mutated it, you had to call will change bang. Okay. And will change bang alerts the object that these fields are dirty. Right. It tells it tells Active Record like tr- yeah, mark this field as dirty regardless of whether you think it's actually changed or not. Okay. And so in 4.1, the way that um, mutation tracking works is when you assign a value, we compare it to the previous value. If those two things are different, we stick it in the hash. And then um, after you finish saving, we then take that hash and stick it into a different instance variable called previous changes because there's a very, presumably very not used feature of Rails, where you can not only ask if something has changed and what the previous value was, you can also ask if it was changed before the last time you called save and what the previous value before that assignment was. Okay. You only go two steps back, though. <laughs> um, anyway, right, so f- there were a variety of reasons why I needed serialized to not always assume to be changed. 
uh, I usually in my talks talk about like it was because I wanted to start guaranteeing certain contracts about attribute assignment and yada yada yada. Really, it was just because I wanted to refactor that code and the, and that and there was a five line method that I I needed to get rid of and getting rid of that method required detecting mutations across all of Active Record, um, which maybe is a little overkill, but hey, you know it works out. Uh, so the way the way I do that is I I keep a copy of the database representation when we pull it out of the database, and then when we're checking if something's changed, I take the current value and then cast it for the database and see if the database representation is different. Which then, of course, right that is more work, so it's going to be a little bit slower, but not like painfully so. And there's certain little optimizations that um, we're always sort of in the in the realm of like I could do this optimization, I will do this optimization at some point. Like for example. I may have even done this in Forto. I don't actually remember off the top of my head, but uh, like you can't mutate something if you've never read it. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to check things that you've never read. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And stuff like that. Now, ultimately, though, so then what this meant was the method changed attributes, which used to just, an active model just returns this hash that's in an instance variable. And then active record, I override that method to call super.reverseMerge and then also go to, uh, check for all of the attributes that have been mutated. Um, and then there's another method called changes, which is a hash where the key is the name of the attribute and the value is an array containing the previous value and the current value. So it turned out the main bottleneck was, um, so changes is implemented in terms of changed attributes. And so it wasn't even the mutation detection. It was after you finish saving. When I said we copy that hash into another instance variable, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now copying that actually is very expensive. Uh, like computing that hash is pretty expensive. So, um, and and, it, and all of that's there for a feature that most people are never going to use. But that's where most of the cost was. Uh, so I started looking at ways to optimize that away. And ultimately what I ended up doing was introducing a new object called Mutation Tracker, which rather than comparing an attribute to its database representation... Oh, and the other one was that when you assigned it, I then had to eagerly like build a database representation at that point in time. And so I started doing the mutation tracker was I would uh, do a deep copy of the attributes, um, like the attribute set when it gets created. And then I would keep that attribute set and compare it to the current attribute set. Um, and I would still do the database. I think I still do the database comparison, although I don't remember off the top of my head if, if that was what I was doing or not. But like now I always had a thing where if I ask for the database representation of the attribute in the first attribute set, that's guaranteed to be different than the one that I get out of the second attribute set. And then changes applied becomes free because now like I have these two attribute sets right and all the logic for previously changed is the exact same logic but it can uh, just you know compared to uh, two attribute sets one further step removed and so I just clone the attribute set uh, shallow copy the second time and then just move the current mutation tracker into another instance variable why can you shallow copy the second time and not the first time because the attribute objects are mutable all right right and uh, we have the database representation because we just sent it to the database right so that all worked, and then I realized that I made reads 20% slower because <laughs> uh, that, that, me- that main thing was uh, when you first initialize it, right, I do a, a deep copy of the attribute objects, and that turns out to be expensive. <laughs> playing whack-a-mole here. Yeah, playing whack-a-mole, right? So I sort of took a step back and reanalyzed everything, right? And so um, I sort of went with a structure that I'd been wanting to do for a while, but I was going to wait till the attribute assignment infrastructure was moved up to Active Model, because basically now Active Record completely re-implements every method from Dirty and shares no code with Active Model. But so basically, since the attribute objects are immutable, um, whenever you assign, it doesn't mutate the attribute object; it builds a new attribute object, and then the attribute set is mutable. 
So what I can do is I can have when you uh, assign to an attribute, I can have each attribute keep a reference to the attribute it was created from. Mm -hmm. And so by doing that, a, so now I know two things. Have you been read? Have you been written? If you haven't been read, I know you can't be, uh, you can't be mutated. And if you haven't been written, I know you can't have changed from assignment. Um, and so then I can ask each attribute pretty lazily, like, hey, compare yourself to your, to your ancestor or to the earliest known ancestor. And if you haven't been read, skip the mutation uh, detection. If you haven't been written, well, if you have no ancestors, skip mm -hmm. uh, assignment uh, checking. And then I can also do little optimizations. Like, so when I say I have a method uh, called original value from database. And uh, on the from database version of attribute, I just return value before typecast. And then on all of the other ones, I do a round trip of the, uh, uh, of the typecasting. Um, so cast it and then and cast it from the before typecast and then take that and cast that for the database. Uh, and then in changes applied, now because these objects are immutable, like the original, the previous changes is just that tree. And then the uh, current set of attributes is just basically I just take the head of the list and, and, and cut off the tail. And so then each attribute individually becomes basically a singly linked list representing a state transition or a, a snapshot of every state that it's been in, right. barring mutations, because of course I can't have a version of it kept around from like before you mutated it. But you can still detect if it has been mutated. Right, exactly. Uh, and so all of that... I haven't checked since like two days ago to make sure that Ruby Bench shows the same numbers I was showing. On my machine, I was showing that we're slightly faster. Slightly faster for? Reads okay. than we were in 4.2. I've also noticed a couple of times now Ruby Bench seems to show different numbers than I see on my machine. Uh, <laughs> so I'm still waiting on that. And then there's still just some little optimizations I can do there. One of the other side effects of this that I've been trying to really hammer in is like if you turn off partial writes, make everything go way faster. Um, but basically, this ultimately this this optimization comes from the place that I get a lot of my optimizations out of, which is like just thinking about the common usage of, act, of Active Record. So ultimately, what I've done here is I've just made dirty tracking lazy. So if you're not going to save, you're not, uh, if you're not assigning attributes, and if you're not saving to the database, you're not going to pay any costs that you would have paid for writes. So you only care about checking whether or not the commuting whether or not something's dirty if you ask if something's dirty. Correct. Basically. And we ask if something's dirty when we save because we have partial writes enabled by default. And partial, write, you partial writes is the thing that says, like, I'm only going to write to the database stuff I know, if, know has changed. Exactly. And that's, why, and that's why we needed to have serialized be always dirty originally was because if it wasn't always dirty, then you would mutate it and it wouldn't save those changes to the database. So is partial writes a way, and maybe I'm missing something, but is it a way to provide some semblance of, like, concurrency by obscurity kind of <laughs> like <laughs> yeah like it gives you kind of sort of maybe solves certain race conditions in that right. if two people edit the same form but only fill out different fields they wouldn't stomp on each other's toes right i think it's also just a case that at least my sequel i i kind of have a feeling this isn't true of postgres but i've never looked too closely into it but uh at least on my sequel like you pay re-indexing costs on assigning a field to the same value in an update statement mm, okay so this would allow you to avoid those re-indexing costs by only changing the fields you know have actually changed. Right, and that was originally like the quote-unquote issue because right, like right, saying that a uh, serialized attribute is always changed regardless of anything else is kind of a bug because like changed is lying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so, but the the original quote-unquote bug report for this was specifically saying that like, hey, like serialized might actually be a really large data structure and sending that to the database over and over again if you don't touch it is really expensive right like even if you're not indexing just the fact that you're sending that much data over the wire 
Yep. Yep. That makes sense. So is part is disabling partial write something you would suggest? Can you do that? Is that a config option? Yeah, you just do. Uh, you don't have to disable it for your whole app. You can disable it on a per model basis. You just do self dot partial writes equals false in your in your class. Is that something you would suggest? Um, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's something I would suggest. I would definitely say it's something that I would recommend considering whether partial writes adds anything. Because I am trying to make sure I am trying to make it. I don't know if I'll be able to get with partial writes on too much performance out of reads or writes for that matter um, compared to four two. But I do think I can get us a huge win, especially for rights, if you have partial rights turned off. Yeah, I've never seen partial rights turned off, though. <laughs> no, nor have so I, but nobody, it's because nobody ever thinks about it. Right. So if, if this became a thing where it was like, test your app with partial rights on and partial rights off and see what's faster, then maybe more people would try it. Yeah. I think right now, most apps will see absolutely no difference whatsoever. Right. Like, I, I don't think partial rights actually gives any benefit to most apps. Okay, and then five, and your plan is that in five O you would see a speed boost by having partial rights off. Yeah, but not necessarily speed boost in like a major performance hotspot. Okay, because again, right, like the time it takes to save an active record model is pretty trivial amount of work compared to like an HTTP request and round tripping to the database. So, if you disabled partial rights, does that also disable dirty, or no? It doesn't disable dirty, but because of the way I've implemented dirty in five, um, you will not pay any cost for dirty checking because partial rights is implemented in terms of dirty checking. Right. Okay. <laughs> so then if you never call, so if you don't, it won't disable dirty checking, but you won't pay the cost. Right. You won't pay the cost for when you call save. You won't pay the, the dirty checking Yeah, you won't cost. pay the going and checking if, if right. every But if you explicitly checking. call dirt, like if you explicitly somewhere are checking, like, is this it, field dirty for whatever right. reason? Then you'll still pay that cost for that specific field only. That's under, the underscore changed query method, right? Yeah, there's a like couple. Yeah. But yeah, attribute underscore changed question method, uh, right. question mark is how you can. And then you can also get uh, like previous underscore attribute name to get the old value. Right. Or it might be actually underscore was. Hmm. Oh, underscore was is the current value. And then previously underscore attribute is like the Wait. before <laughs> I signed it, before the last time I called save. I don't know why this feature <laughs> exists. Okay. Well, good luck. I legitimately luck. don't. Mm. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, so that's, you know, but I'm, I'm mostly just looking at stuff like that. Um, another one that I'm not really sure I'm going to be able to do much about, but uh, we have an issue in Shopify where we use YAML pretty extensively for caching. Uh, we have a, a thing called Identity Cache, which is basically an identity map that lives in memcached and operates on associations. And it's a public gem, and you can go look at it. Um, and it operates by basically on the YAML encoding to, to, by default. And I made the size of a YAML encoded active record model uh, like three times larger in 4.2. Hmm. Why? Because the old one was incorrect and wasn't actually persisting enough data. Okay. I, there, so there's a, there's a little bit I can do. So basically what I'm doing right now is I'm just straight up serializing the attribute set in its entirety, which means every attribute object gets serialized. And then the type objects get serialized. So one place I could see a win is that the type object, I could make sure to, instead of serializing the type object all of the time, I could instead have a, uh, I could either serialize the type object or a flag that says I am using the type that was provided by the class. But the reason I'm serializing the type object is because sometimes the type object will be different because your query might have actually returned something completely different. Mm -hmm. 
like it might be because you're a new column because you did select count star as whatever or or it might be like a column that exists but has a different type because you did select count star as name from users (laughs) (laughs) right so there's that stuff and then also persisting dirty state and like there's just a bunch of information that was missing and basically like i sort of got into a little bit of an argument with another developer who's like yeah you did this but like that size increase is unacceptable for for us here i'm like okay cool having a record uh round trip from yaml and not behave exactly the same for every single method called on it after round tripping as before is unacceptable for rails and right like this is the trade-off so sorry right. we can you know use something different if size is a uh, is a major concern so you don't think you're gonna be able to do much about that <laughs> Yeah, and well, and the stuff I can do, like I would have to reach into so many internals of so many collaborating objects right. for such a, a small win on what I. And if if you're somebody who's like specifically affected by this, and like I see it as a pretty niche use case, if I'm wrong, shoot me an email. But right now, I feel like using YAML for for like long term persistence, where size is a major factor, is pretty niche, and there's probably better formats that we can use. Mm-hmm. I'd love to introduce something like that into Active Record proper, where like it's some f- sort of persistence format that's more guaranteed to remain consistent across versions. Oh, and if anybody's affected by this, I did fix. It's going to be in four two five and five zero, but uh, like I did fix it so that you can now load records that were serialized to YAML in four one. I forgot to add the backwards. I actually fixed it in, in Master months ago and just forgot to backport it, but I backported it now. <laughs> um, so yeah, but one of the features I'd love to add is some sort of persistence format that's a little bit more independent of like Ruby versions and Rails versions and is more targeted at like, I'm using this thing for caching and I don't care about persisting things like dirty checking and I'm never going to be using this on a record that has like custom things from a, or like additional attributes from a custom select clause and maybe even go so far as to, as to like uh, cache the after typecast version of it in this persistence format. So that way when you read it out, like you skip type coercion. So that way your reads be faster. You do more work um, on writes and there's all kinds of edge cases that we now have to consider if we go that route because like now we have to deal with any arbitrary user object. But we could always do something like have a really intelligent uh, way of representing anything that could be represented in JSON. And then if we see anything we don't recognize, like fall back to Marshall. Right. But anyway, I don't know. That's something I think uh, would be useful to add. Uh, Like, there are use cases for it, and it's something I'm thinking about. Cool. Good luck. Thanks. (laughs) I feel like I'm always... I'm always wishing you luck, because I have no desire to tackle the problems you're (laughs) tackling. What? Make Rails 5 faster than Rails 4, too. Like, in a way that impacts most apps. I'm happy happy that you're doing it. And I'm also happy that I'm not doing it. Hopefully I'll find a few more big performance wins before we ship. I would really like to have Rails 5 be like noticeably faster than 4.2. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, when are we talking about beta? Beta is going to be August. We're in October. Yep. The, uh, <laughs> it still says fall 2015 in Campfire, and okay. we're getting close to like that not even qualifying. So right. I don't I think, know. I think I had said Christmas when they said August. That was like Christmas, just based on past experience with major Rails release. So. Well, Christmas was, is usually when we do the actual release, right. but not necessarily right. the beta. Right. I was thinking beta release candidate around Christmas time. Yeah. It seems a little... I mean, I don't know. We got to get Action Cable figured out still. And then mm-hmm. I guess now we have Turbolinks 5 to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
you know, <laughs> when the features that I wish we didn't have in Rails at all are figured out, we'll ship. Okay, sounds good. And when you make it a lot faster. And when I make it a lot faster. Okay. With WebSockets and Turbo. <laughs> yeah. You need Turbo Record. Forget this Active Record thing. You don't need your app to be fast because you have Turbo Links making it fast for you. Mm-hmm. This is true. <laughs> All right. Let's okay. wrap up. Anyway, um, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 37. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. As always, thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. I will make Active Record 1% faster for every five-star review we get on iTunes between now and the next episode. <laughs> Let's see if okay. that works. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs>